Zimnamnya 2 was a space-based mirror that was launched in late October of 1992 and then deployed in early 1993. This satellite-based mirror was located next to the now-retired Mir space station and was 20 meters wide, which is a little over 65 feet wide, and it reflected sunlight down to a 5-kilometer or a little over 3-mile in diameter oval down on the surface of the planet. The reporting from this moment, when humans in the path of the mirror's target regions travel, experienced the oval of light passing over their homes, is pretty remarkable. The luminosity in these regions, which is a measure of brightness, the amount of light added to the night in these areas, was approximately equivalent to what would have been provided by a full moon. So the difference was fairly stark. A normal night turned into a fairly bright, full moon-esque night. And this illumination was caused by a giant space mirror reflecting the sun's light down onto nighttime-darkened parts of Europe. This sounds a bit like a mad science experiment, by conventional standards. But the man behind the Znamya, which means banner in Russian, was a fairly prominent and level-headed person who had different long-term ambitions for his space mirrors, though he did hope the mirrors themselves would serve a purpose beyond merely allowing him to work on his true aspirations. Vladimir Siromyatnikov was a Soviet space scientist who is perhaps best known for a docking mechanism he designed, which allowed spacecraft of all shapes and sizes to connect to each other. So when a craft from any country docks with the International Space Station, or if a craft or future module needs help from any other type of craft, this guy is the reason that they're able to do so. Versions of his androgynous peripheral attach system, invented in the 1970s, are still in use today. He also helped design and develop the world's first manned spacecraft, the one that took Yuri Gagarin into space in 1961. Siro was truly passionate about solar sails, though, and he'd built up enough credibility within the Soviet establishment to get some attention for his plans related to this technology which in practice would involve a craft being powered by the sun, a giant mirror-like sail being pushed by photons, much like the wind pushes the sails on ships down on Earth. This is not a terribly obscure concept today, but at the time it was still quite niche, and he was granted some funding and time to work on it for a bit because of his credibility and prestige. But by the late 1980s, politics came into the picture. And he was only able to work on this technology, which could potentially someday allow humans to travel into interstellar space, because it would allow us to build up speed over time without using any fuel. He was only able to work on it because he reframed the technologies involved so that they better appealed to the forces that be, in the government, who managed the space program budget. He pitched the program as such. Giant mirrors, which would unfold from satellites launched into orbit, could reflect sunlight back down to Earth, illuminating portions of land so that people living in these artificially lit areas wouldn't be as cold at night, could harvest crops year-round and 24 hours a day, could work however long they wanted without running up their energy bills. 
They could also survive the harsh Russian winters without going stir-crazy, sunlightless and completely stuck indoors due to the cold and darkness. It could also be used, he posited, as an emergency aid tool, giving first responders ambient light by which to work when there's a disaster, when there's a manhunt. Basically, all of the pitfalls and downsides of working at night would disappear in a flash because this controllable, repositionable satellite mirror would allow them to reflect sunlight to wherever they needed it, down on the surface of the Earth. And a constellation of these satellites would allow them to utilize this power anywhere on the planet, at will. Which is kind of a compelling concept. There are a lot of downsides, of course, from the weirdness of thinking that it would be great to be able to work 24 hours a day, to work the soil year-round, presumably without consequence, and to perhaps even stave off sleep entirely, to the political ramifications of blasting illumination down to the surface of the planet, as if that wouldn't cause issues with the commons of the sky, not to mention the ecosystems down below, which rely, fundamentally, on circadian rhythms established by the day-night cycle. All of this aside, though, it's a pretty neat idea, and mad science-y, but also kind of doable, and potentially useful, maybe, under some circumstances. It would also allow him to continue working on a lot of important solar sail-related technologies under the cover of a project that seemed to have more immediate, government-prioritized benefits. So he set up a side project to officially manage his solar sail research and continued to work for the government on this space mirror project. And by the early mid-90s, it was up there. It worked. Not as a blast of daytime-level sunlight, but as a full moon level of illumination. And it gave him enough of a proof of concept that he could more easily pitch and get funding for the second stage of the project, the Znamya 2.5, which was 25 meters, or about 82 feet wide, compared to 20 meters and 65 feet wide for its precursor. That increase in scale, along with some other little upgrades, were meant to increase the amount of light reflected, so that the portion of the planet at which it was aimed would receive something like 5 to 10 full moons worth of light, and a slightly larger oval in which that light would be present. Unfortunately for the project, the Znamya 2.5, after making it up to orbit in early 1999, hit a snag, quite literally. The mirror, as it was unfurling, was caught on an antenna and ripped. They tried to unsnag it, but to no avail and they had to deorbit the satellite without ever getting to test it, burning the thing up without knowing if it would have worked as planned or not. The Znamya 3 was already designed and under initial construction at this point, as basically just a scaled-up version of the previous two models, with a diameter of 60 to 70 meters, which is about 197 to 230 feet. But the pushback from the scientific community Astronomers who were worried about orbital light pollution blocking out the stars, but also biologists who were concerned about the impact of light beamed down onto wildlife at night, and psychologists who were concerned about the impact on humans, especially human sleep cycles, was growing. And though the Russians continued to talk up their plans to light up five or six Russian cities using these types of mirrors, they eventually pulled funding for the project, leaving Siromyatnikov to seek private funding for the project, alongside his also-shelved, also-unfunded, solar-sail-powered spacecraft plans. Seromyatnikov eventually went on to redesign the docking systems that he had designed earlier for more modern spacecraft, 
and he continued working, theoretically, on potential space mirror and solar sail designs until he died in 2006, both projects still unfunded, their full potential as of yet still untested. What I'd like to talk about today is space, and how the collection of sunlight up there might benefit earthbound humans down here on the surface of the planet. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. This is kind of a special episode of Let's Know Things in that it is the 208th episode. I started this show back in 2016. It has been four whole years, one episode per week, 52 weeks in a year, four of those years, plus about a dozen bonus episodes that go out to people who monetarily support the show. It's been a whole lot of work, but it's also been a whole lot of fun, and I consider myself very fortunate to be able to spend part of my time each week producing this show. A huge thanks to everybody who is listening to the show, who is sharing it with their friends who they think might enjoy it, who are supporting it directly, monetarily. Your contributions, but also your open-mindedness and attention and the emails that I receive and the feedback that I receive from people, it all means a great deal to me. I feel very fortunate to be able to produce this show and to have you on the receiving end of it. So thank you very much for that. All right, let's get back to the show. The Boeing X-37 is a model of what's called an orbital test vehicle which is a type of space plane that was originally dreamed up as a NASA project back in 1999, but which was then transferred to the United States Department of Defense in 2004. This line of craft, of which there are currently two permutations, the X-37A and the current model, the X-37B, is a strange animal in that we know quite a bit about it, but there's a lot that we don't know, too, including the extent of the operations it has completed, and the full purpose of those operations. We know, for instance, that the X-37B was launched into space on September 7, 2017, and that it returned to Earth on October 27, 2019, 780 days in orbit, which is substantially longer than the originally planned for 270-day maximum that the Air Force announced for the vehicle. The X-37 is autonomous, so it's unmanned, at least for the time being, and it purportedly exists to increase the flexibility with which the DoD is able to operate within Earth's orbit, giving it the capacity to more casually get stuff up there, from vehicle-based experiments to secret military satellites, but also potentially to do stuff to assets that are already up there, to repair existing DoD satellites, and implicitly to mess with other countries' commercial and military hardware on the sly. This space plane is launched into orbit on a conventional rocket, like the Atlas V or a Falcon 9, but once up there, it can operate a bit like a plane or a very maneuverable satellite, puttering around in orbit, and then upon re-entry, landing itself autonomously at one of three known military bases. The next version of the X-37, aptly named the X-37C, is meant to be about 165-180% to the size of the X-37B, 
which itself is about one-fourth the size of the now-defunct U.S. space shuttle. And this new iteration will allow the X-37 to transport up to six astronauts in a pressurized compartment, making it even more versatile and helping it live up to the promise that was announced by NASA when it was still under development to serve as both crew transport and potentially crew rescue from the International Space Station if necessary. So this is a vehicle that currently, as far as we know, is optimized for the robotic delivery and recovery of objects in orbit, and though some of what it's up to is known, in the broadest sense at least, some of what it does is top secret, and thus we can only really speculate, and the speculation at this point has ranged from the delivery of spy satellites to the testing of novel sensors in orbit, to the stalking of the Chinese Tiangong-1 space station module, to the testing of the so-called impossible drive, the M-drive, which itself is quite interesting if it could ever be shown to actually work, but Boeing, the maker of the X-37, has responded to that specific speculation by saying that they're no longer pursuing that avenue of research, which doesn't mean no if you're the kind of person who distrusts formal announcements by military contractors, but the Air Force has also stated publicly that the X-37 is testing what is called the Hall Effect Thruster instead, which is a bit more conventional but also quite interesting, especially for in-orbit maneuvering purposes. A lot of journalistic scrutiny about the X-37 program has focused on the potential military applications, which makes sense, it being a Department of Defense program, and the fact that quite a lot of the experimentation we do know about, or strongly suspect based on the findings of folks who have been tracking the space plane through telescopes from Earth, has been directly related to the issues that we might face in a near-future conflict, in which an opponent might try to take out one of the United States' main advantages, which is technology empowered by satellite tracking, sensors, guidance, and the like. The next official mission for this vehicle, though, includes something a little bit different, which you could absolutely choose to view through the lens of military application, but which also could impact a great many industries beyond the realm of weaponry and combat. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from The Drive's sub-publication, The War Zone, and it's entitled, X-37B Space Plane's Microwave Power Beam Experiment is a Way Bigger Deal Than It Seems. On May 16th, 2020, the X-37B is scheduled to launch from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. I'm recording this a little less than a week before that scheduled date, by the way, so there's a chance that it will be delayed, as launches often are for a variety of reasons, but it's a fair bet that if it is, it'll be rescheduled for some time in the near future. Aboard the vehicle for this launch are experiments that will track the effects of cosmic radiation and a lack of gravity, on plant seeds and other quote-unquote significant materials, alongside an experiment that was designed by the Naval Research Laboratory that quote, transforms solar power into radiofrequency microwave energy, then studies transmitting that energy to Earth, end quote. And those quotes were from Air Force Secretary Barbara M. Barrett, by the way, as part of a press release from the United States DOD about this mission which is designated OTV-6, or Orbital Test Vehicle Mission 6. The announcement about that latter experiment in particular is fairly understated, but the implication, backed by a statement about the United States' aging space infrastructure, is that much of what's in orbit currently is predicated on older technology, 
and older situational circumstances. Today, a lot of countries are operating in orbit, alongside a lot of private companies. Because of the risks associated with all those interests, working in relatively close proximity, and because of the increasing risks that some entity might decide to start attacking vital orbital infrastructure, either physically, up close, or remotely, using energy of some kind, or hacking, it's important that the U.S. government is able to quickly swap things out, put new hardware up into orbit, and maintain and repair the fundamental components that are already in place, but which could go offline at any moment due to degradation, accident, or attack. The X-37 program helps with that a bit, but one potential implication of being able to convert solar power into microwave energy is that solar energy could be collected in one location and then beamed to another location, with some loss of energy along the way, but not so much that the effort would be pointless. So conceivably, this could mean building an array of solar panel-laden satellites in orbit, having them continuously harvest energy from the sun, and then beaming that energy to other assets in orbit, to other satellites, to the International Space Station, to spacecraft, like the X-37 and its descendants, just about anything that might need power up in space. One of the current issues with operating in orbit is that the hardware that exists up there needs energy to function. And although it's possible to launch satellites with tiny nuclear power sources, that went out of vogue decades ago when the potential for a failed launch, with the launch vehicle exploding, scattering nuclear materials over large swaths of Earth, became a known possibility. The most common approach these days is to deploy satellites with solar panels attached, but this limits the range of possible designs, and substantially limits the amount of power each satellite can draw upon, truncating what can be done because energy comes in as a trickle, and then must be stored in an onboard battery, lest the satellite go dead from lack of power. Solar power-optimized satellite arrays could help with this, allowing purpose-built satellites to be put in orbit to collect solar power in an optimized way 24-7, and then to funnel the energy they collect to other assets. Those assets then freed up to be specialized for other purposes, rather than a great deal of their size, weight, and design having to be dedicated to the collecting of enough energy just to keep the lights on. Beyond that, though, the Naval Research Laboratory's head of beamed power, which is a position they actually have, perhaps telling us something about the potential for beamed power technologies, has said that there are serious implications for collecting solar energy in space and then beaming it down to Earth, and in particular, for beaming that energy to UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, often called drones. Just as satellites orbiting the planet could be sustained in perpetuity with practically unlimited amounts of energy, at least up to the maximum capacity for specialized solar satellites up there with them, so too, potentially, could a swarm of drones patrol the planet's skies, never needing to land, powered entirely by energy beamed to them from space. Atmospheric satellites, essentially. Less explicitly stated, but also mentioned by different experts within and outside this program, is the possibility that this could extend even further to beaming energy down to remote military outposts, to soldiers in battle whose tanks and artillery and such could be powered by beams of energy from space, and to vessels at sea, combat ships receiving a steady flow of directed energy from solar-powered, satellite-based energy arrays. In the civilian world, this could also mean, someday, 
powering aircraft, civilian airlines, using this energy, alongside freighter ships and other types of vehicles that operate remotely beyond the easy reach of other sorts of power. Cities, too, could benefit from this power source, and that might even come up first as one of the early use cases for such a technology, if it does in fact prove viable. The general assumption of how this would work is that giant solar panels would be built in space, and those panels would beam energy down to Earth, where it would be received by what are called rectennas, which is short for rectifying antenna, and which refers to a type of antenna that can convert electromagnetic energy into electricity. This plan, though it sounds like techno-magic, has actually been proposed by the U.S. Department of Energy, most clearly in a concept outline they published alongside animated infographics and everything back in March of 2014. Giant space-based mirrors fanning out like wings from a satellite would focus light from the sun onto solar panel collectors at the center of the satellite. The solar energy collected would then be transformed into another type of energy and sent as either a laser or a microwave beam down to a receiving station on Earth. There are pros and cons to both approaches, with the laser satellites being cheaper but with relatively lower power delivery, while the microwave satellites would be further out and thus harder to repair and more expensive up front, and they would also require far larger receivers down on Earth receivers a few miles in diameter apiece. Laser satellites would also run the risk of weaponization, though, being capable of blinding or even burning people on the ground if the signal ever deviated from the Earth-based receiver due to malfunction or hostile intent. And laser-based energy of this kind would be nearly worthless during cloudy periods, while the microwave satellite would be able to project energy through cloud cover, too but again they would require very large capturing areas on the ground, plus very tall rectenna receiving towers within those capturing areas, which can be an eyesore, can be expensive to build and maintain, and which can cause issues with local wildlife, especially birds, which have a tendency to slam into tall antenna towers with worrying regularity. In both cases, there's a threat that other countries, beyond the one building these satellites, would view the effort as a direct or veiled attempt to weaponize space, potentially speeding up the currently slow-simmering Cold War that's taking place in orbit today. There's also the chance that such a resource could be repurposed by malicious actors, redirecting a laser satellite to burn someone on the ground, or somehow amplifying the microwave beam from a microwave satellite, rendering the harmless radiation into something harmful. Whether that's actually possible or not is up for debate, but the potential that it could happen might be just as important to whether or not something like this ever gets built as whether it actually is possible practically. That very potentiality could influence the discussion around the creation of this type of project. Notably, China has already announced that they're planning to build the first solar power station in space to provide, quote, inexhaustible clean energy, end quote, according to a February 2019 story in Science and Technology Daily. They are reportedly in the testing phase currently and intend to build the station by 2050. At the moment, they're apparently assessing the impact of beamed microwaves from space on living organisms on the ground, anything that would be alive and organic around the theoretical receiving station. They're conducting this research using tethered balloons with solar panels attached to them, which can then beam the energy back down to Earth using microwaves. 
and the Japanese space agency is purportedly at a similar stage with their own experimentation, all of which seems prudent as these microwave beams should, at that level, be harmless. But that's not the kind of thing you want to be wrong about. There are quite a few skeptics of this technology, many of whom are enthusiastic supporters of other space-related things, even crazy-seeming space-related things, but who do not think the math works out for this particular concept. Most commonly, they believe that the losses associated with the beaming process make the production of energy in space, for use on the ground, somewhat pointless. There are other, better options available in their minds, and thus any energy generated in space would be better utilized up in space as well. We're also at a moment in history when conspiracy theories about all sorts of technologies, but especially those related to radiation, like Wi-Fi and 5G mobile signals, are causing some people to worry that there are invisible threats all around us, and that governments around the world are intentionally, or perhaps just carelessly, harming us for the sake of profits, or perhaps even more nefarious motives. Now, there's no evidence that 5G or similar signals cause any harm to human beings, but history is rife with enough bad behavior from corporations and governments when it comes to things like the side effects of common chemicals found in popular products that it makes sense that people wouldn't necessarily just trust the word of the government or the companies installing these technologies, even if the science so far seems to be on their side. It's a fair bet that as a result of this lapse in public trust of authorities, any technology, even a very beneficial, provably safe one, would have trouble getting funding and public support, lacking some change in the dynamic between officials, scientific entities, and the folks who feel they have no reason to trust either group. That said, wireless power transfer has already become fairly ubiquitous in personal electronics, and enough people are comfortable using smartphones and connecting to Wi-Fi signals that I suspect most people would be thrilled to never have to plug a device in ever again. If cars, phones, computers, and everything else could just tap into a Wi-Fi-like signal that would funnel electricity to them safely, the revolution in personal and transportation technology that would be enabled could be sudden and dramatic. And if that power stemmed from a practically infinite and clean space-based source, I imagine folks with any concerns about such a system, even warranted ones, would have quite the time trying to convince anyone to turn that power switch back off. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Last Policeman, and it's the first book in a trilogy by the author Ben Winters. I recommended another book by Ben Winters recently called Golden State, and it was good enough that I decided to look into more of his work, and his work does seem to have kind of a theme to it, in that it's driven by interesting, unusual characters who are in a slightly tweaked version of normal. And in Golden State, that meant a version of California in which people could not lie, it had been made illegal for people to lie. And in The Last Policeman, in this trilogy, the main character is a cop who recently became a detective, who himself is a bit unusual as a character. But he also exists in a world in which there is an asteroid that is just monumentally large that has a 100% guarantee of hitting Earth in the relatively near future. And everybody is aware of this, so he is living in a world that is aware it is about to be destroyed, but he cannot let go of his last case. 
a case that, by all indications, seems to be a suicide, of which there are a great many in this world that he lives in, but he cannot let go of the idea that it seems to be a murder, and he feels the need to continue to work on such a thing, despite the fact that the world has changed utterly and completely around him. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Last Policeman by Ben Winters. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the show at letsknowthings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, and its associated essays at brainlenses.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram, and just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. Four years in. Can you believe it? I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.